Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, aka Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit blog and author of A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visupview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, .blogspot.com. And procure a copy of that book and my other works at the Farm's official store, which is the farmpodcast.store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. You get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. And that brings up a brief programming note here, as I'm sure many of you are probably aware by now, you're listening to this uh, podcast from a different website. Uh, that's because through circumstances that are a bit too complex to get into here, um, well, the farm's original hosting on Podbeam is finished. Uh, the issues with Podbeam were just too much, and I think it would be easier to start over from scratch here on Patreon, but there is a silver lining to this. The uh, whole format is better. It's going to be more user-friendly. I can offer you guys more features in the subscriber section. And in general, I hope that this will be a fantastic development. It was a change that I had already been planning on making towards late spring, early summer, but circumstances have dictated that it is happening now. So it is a little rushed and I apologize to that. I sincerely apologize to the subscribers for any issues that you guys have had. The subscriber section and all that good stuff on the Podbeam website will be up until March 15th, at which point everything is going down, but you can still access everything to there. And in the meantime, I'm going to start uploading the subscriber shows on the new Patreon in addition to the old farm podcast, which you can still access if you are a subscriber. Otherwise, expect new weekly shows available to the public each week as per usual on our new home here at Patreon, and you will still get the bonus shows and all the other goodies that I I am working on if you are a subscriber. All right, guys. I have got two heavyweights joining me for today's show, both of them repeaters. Our first guest has been a writer for Project Censored, Daily Censored, and Truth Out, among many other publications. He has received Project Censored's most censored news stories for both 20, uh, for 2009 and 2010. And these stem from the articles he wrote, Neoliberalism, Charter Schools, and the Chicago School Model, slash Obama and Duncan's Education Policy, Like Bush's Only Worse, both published by Counterpunch on August 24, 2009. He has also published more than seven books on education over the past 20 years, including Charter School, Movement, History, Politics, Policies, Economics, and Effectiveness. He has decades of activism stretching back to the anti-war movement of the 1960s. He moved to Nicaragua to support the Sandinistas during the 1980s and has fought chartered schools towards the turn of the 20th century and beyond or 21st century rather danny is not quite that old <laughs> finally we have been investigate he has been investigating parapolitics for nearly 50 years folks i give you guys the legend dr danny weil danny thank you so much for dropping by with us today sir thank you for having me once again recluse pleasure to be here all right and also joining us is another parapolitical heavyweight he is one of the founders of Public Eye Magazine and the Political Research Associates. And of course, he is best known for authoring the classics, Old Nazis, The New Right, and The Republican Party, and The Coors Connection. Folks, I give you guys the legend, Russ Ballant. Russ, thank you so much for dropping by today, sir. 
It's a privilege to be with both of you. Thank you very much. I must say, too, it is an honor to be doing this particular show with these two gentlemen. It was uh, actually Danny who had reached out to me and spurred me to uh, get this one in the works. And uh, when I two legends want to do a podcast with you, well, you just don't say no. So um, uh, having grown up, especially reading a lot of Russ's stuff here and been greatly influenced by it, um, I was on cloud nine, to put it mildly. So this is a real honor for me. All right. So normally when I have these guys on here, we do a little series uh, that we've been rolling out over the last couple of months on the secret history of international fascism. But today's episode is not a historic show. It is a state of the union one. These parapolitical titans are going to help me break down the situation currently unfolding in the Ukraine and the distinct possibility that this could spill into a full-blown world war which is the big thing that we really need to keep in mind throughout all of this. Now, I myself have been greatly concerned about this for a while. The atmosphere in this country seems to echo the climate prior to the First World War. People in those days were dubbed, quote, the sleepwalkers to posterity, and it is most apt. Everyone thought the world was too sophisticated and integrated for a major European war, much the same as we felt until few weeks ago. So on that note, let us get things rolling here. All right, Russ, I'm going to let you sort of set the stage for us. So to start off with, can you break down U.S. military spending in relation to the rest of the world? Sure. Uh, the, uh, um, <clears throat> I'm going, doing this based on uh, a table that I've uh, shared widely to my uh, uh, email list that shows that the United States uh, as uh, in the uh, 2020, and that's uh, the last year I found data for, um, the United States spent $778 billion. <clears throat> and this is for uh, uh, regular military activities, war spending, nuclear weapons, international military assistance, and, and so forth. Uh, <clears throat> assistance, meaning, uh, you know, uh, expanding the, its military control over in other countries. Uh, <clears throat> the next nine countries, uh, and in terms of their military spending, when it's added up, does not equal what the United States spends. Um, given current events, it's worth pointing out that Russia is number four with just under $62 billion compared to our $778 billion. India spends more than Russia spends on its military. Uh, Russia is almost tied with uh, the United Kingdom, with Britain uh, and its military spending. Of course, nobody says Britain is trying to resurrect the British Empire, right? So <clears throat> it's, uh, it's way out of proportion and you know when we talk about the extent of uh, the U.S. military globally, we begin to see where that money is going. All right, Russ. Uh, I work with a lot of self-identified liberals and Democrats. They are shocked and horrified by Russia's actions. Many are starting to chomp at the bit for war, uh, and because of the mainly because of the brutality allegedly used by Russian forces, um, basically they cannot understand how such a thing could be happening in the 21st century or some such shit. 
Mm -hmm. um, for those still clinging to the notion that America has uh, some moral high ground over the Russians in this regard, could you give us a brief recap of the death toll that has been brought about by the American uh, empire from roughly the onset of the Cold War till present? Sure. You know, uh, one of the first things I try to present to people is the extent of the U.S. military empire. Uh, a lot of those same folks uh, uh, should just look at a map. Uh, they can Google U.S. military bases and access agreements, and they'll see hundreds. Uh, and, and this map doesn't show it all, the one that I've sent out. But there's uh, four to five hundred military bases and encampments uh, around the world, uh, heavily concentrated in uh, Africa, Central and the northern part of South America and uh, the Middle East, uh, the Pacific nations. Uh, it's massive. It's a, the sun never sets on the American military uh, industrial complex. And then ask people, uh, you know, were they cheerleading when uh, George Bush went into Iraq in 2003 and uh, to take out Saddam Hussein and take control of Iraq? Where were you on the day when shock and awe was days when shock and awe was going on in Baghdad? Were you saying it was immoral, brutal, and the United States need to be stopped by any means necessary? Where were, where are you today when there's somewhere between very wide estimates, at least two hundred thousand dead, up to maybe a million dead, and I think the number is in the higher range. Myself, uh, same with Afghanistan. Were we righteous? You use 9-11 as excuse to invade Afghanistan and stay in there 20 years and, uh, re with results of a quarter million dead. How about Panama? 3,000 deaths in a six weeks. How about Grenada? Four days. We go in there and start killing people because uh, uh, we think we can take control of the island. You know, back to my origins where I, I went from you know, believing the Gulf of Tonkin incident in 1964 that was used as an excuse to uh, uh, attack Vietnam uh, and escalate, I should say, against Vietnam. And from uh, in 1964, you know, I was a standard believer like a lot of people, you know, you know, we can't let them get away with this kind of stuff, you know. North, you know, North Vietnam at that time was a very tiny country, not economically or militarily powerful. And it turns out, at least part of that was just made up uh, and perhaps all of it. But, you know, we killed and the resulting uh, uh, death toll uh, over a million people directly, a million and uh, over th up to 3 million deaths have been estimated from all the results that came out of our invasion of Vietnam, Laos, and uh, what's now called Campuchia at the time, Cambodia where we're conducting secret bombing, seek, not secret to the victims, not secret to the country that was being bombed, but secret from the American people because the United States didn't have legal authorization to do anything in uh, Cambodia at that time. The Gulf of Tonkin Resolution didn't mention Cambodia. So they just, you know, they go wherever they want and they kill as they see fit. Um, I would add the... Uh, you know, since they say this is uh, the most uh, aggressive and violent military action since World War II in Europe, uh, remember the Balkan Wars and remember Bill Clinton on March 24th of, uh, I think it was 1999, started a bombing campaign on Belgrade, 
and other areas around Serbia. And for 78 days, the United States bombed the hell out of that part of the country. Hospitals. Oh, th these are all military targets. Hospitals, public bridges, communications, TV stations, because they don't want the capacity for TV to communicate to the world what's being done by the United States. Um, the invade, you know, we, we equipped in uh, non-American combatants in uh, the genocidal war in East Timor from 77 to 99. I remember uh, then Vice President Mondale going to Indonesia and uh, presenting them with a whole mass of uh, uh, military aircraft and war weapons to continue their massacre of the East Timorese people. Um, the uh, Contra War, which Danny knows much better than I do, the, you know, the estimated 30,000 deaths. We, you know, we hire proxies to go in and start killing the base of the uh, Sandinistas, you know, uh, the uh, uh, agriculture uh, collectives, the labor unions and so forth, killing labor leaders. And the Philippines, you know, um, we're doing a counterinsurgency war, tens of thousands of deaths there. Angola, we are, I allowed with the apartheid Nazi regime, you know, in uh, uh, all the fronts from uh, Namibia, Angola, Mozambique. And, um, you know, uh, if you add up all, all the deaths there, it's in the millions. You know, Angola, 800,000 deaths is, is the estimated. We're working with the apartheid army and uh, 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 units that were uh, created by the CIA. You know, um, uh, Stockwell did a book on it, exposing what- What do you mean, Utah? Uh, Utah, I think, uh, was Samoa, yeah, I think. Unita. Yeah. Unita, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Angola with, uh, <clears throat> and, uh, uh, with Jonas Savimbi, and then you had a Holden Roberto also, uh, and uh, and then in uh, Mozambique was Renamo. Now this U.S. State Department didn't did in uh, uh, 1985 denounce Renamo because basically all they all Renamo was uh, it was working with when there was still a white supremacist Rhodesian government and the South African government. Uh, Renamo and uh, uh, I still believe uh, uh, covert at in, uh, instruments of the CIA. Uh, they were they, they were uh, part of the part of the Wackel uh, World Anti Communist League Conference in Texas in 1985, but the State Department wouldn't let them in. But this is John Singlob and all the uh, people who were organizing support for the Contras. They were also in that meeting uh, organizing support for uh, UNITA and they were organizing support for Renamo. And uh, so this, you know, in Mozambique, an estimated million deaths. In Angola, an estimated 800,000 deaths. Uh, you know, phenomenal amount. Where is the outrage of these liberals and Democrats? Indonesia, half a million deaths in 1965. El Salvador, you know, tens of thousands of people. We have these death squads, as you know, through Operation Condor, all throughout Latin America. Uh, we overthrow governments in Guatemala and from 54, Chile in 73. People are rounded up and brought to the stadiums and massacred in, 
in the tens of thousands? Where's the outrage of these people when we're bombing Belgrade for 78 days straight, when we do shock and awe in Baghdad? Where is their outrage where they start demanding uh, big cuts in the military budget, start saying uh, NATO needs to be dismantled? Where are these people? They only get outraged when the the media and the State Department tell them how to think and they can't think for themselves and they can't study, they can't learn. And they go through this every war that the United States is in, every act of aggression, the United States must be right. But we're, no country in the world has killed as many people since World War II as the United States. And they, 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 can't, they can't come to grips with that. And that's pathetic. It's worse than sleepwalking. It's uh, it's it's uh, more profound cognitive dissonance, to put it mildly. More moral complicity, as far as I <laughs> yeah. Well, I've gone on a bit. I've been, gone on a bit. I'm. I'm oh, you're fine, Russ. You're fine. No, I mean that was well said, and I mean it is something to keep in mind. And another point too, I could make would be just in general what has happened to Afghanistan, going all the way back to U.S. Uh, intervention when the Soviets invaded in 1979. I mean, I believe in the roughly 40 years since uh, we began uh, operations there, something like half of Afghanistan's entire population has been liquidated. I mean, it's just incredible, like what has happened from the yeah. 1970s in terms of the population numbers to that country in the 21st century here. Yeah. So I've, I've got to add Afghanistan to my list. I, that's just an oversight. I was putting that together and I, I need to. Well, there's a lot of genocides to chronicle, Russ, unfortunately. So, I mean, we can't yeah. totally hold that against you. Yeah. And Afghanistan and uh, Belgrade and Serbia. But the point being, I mean, it's it has just been monstrous. And, um, you know, I could actually point back one of my favorite highlights, too, from the Obama era when we um, managed to bomb a children's hospital in Afghanistan accidentally, of course. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. That video has probably been scrubbed online, I would imagine, by this point. But yes, the next time somebody sends you the uh, fear porn about Russian troops and their shock and awe, um, if you can find that video of us bombing the child's hospital in Afghanistan, send that back to them and just... Just see how they respond to it, please. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I found some recent stuff online that talked about uh, the hospitals we bombed in uh, and the public infrastructure that we bombed in uh, Belgrade. Yeah, you know, that's, I mean, that, that's reachable. Um, and uh, in the, I saw a video also of Bill Clinton coming on and doing a press conference saying that the Serbians had killed 45 uh, Albanians, I think they said. And they have to stop. And if they don't, we're going to destroy their capacity for killing 45. I mean, I just read, talked about the, the death tolls of U.S. actions. And they're saying that they're going to uh, do massive bombing, which will kill hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people because of 45 deaths. Obviously, because they killed 45 Albanians who were part of an instrument of U.S. policy, of CIA covert operations. Yeah. Uh, if, if those deaths in fact occurred at all and keep in mind folks we're just talking about like military actions here too i mean this isn't even really counting the death toll that's come from you know other things like sanctions you know quote unquote soft power but i mean yeah. in reality sanctions frequently bring about mass starvation and um 
yes. other hardships for domestic populations in the countries that we are targeting and also do nothing to the leadership and typically entrench public resolve for said leadership because of the suffering U.S. sanctions brings to the public at large. But um, that's another thing that causes a tremendous amount of loss of life. I mean, there will probably be many Russian civilians who will die because of the sanctions that the United States is currently imposing on them. This will be another cost of this conflict that will not be considered a military cost, but it effectively is. Yes. So, you know, let's keep yeah. this in mind, too. Yeah, your, uh, your austerity starvation, uh, you know, uh, dimension of it, uh, you know, look, Guatemala is a perfect example of that, you know, and uh, the U.S. counterinsurgency war there and uh, U.S. policies there have resulted in an estimated quarter million dead in Guatemala, a big threat to the United States, Guatemala, eh? Yeah, yeah. Just, just, just the hypocrisy, you know, the I mean, we, you know, again, we routinely use hunger and starvation as a weapon against our quote unquote adversaries that that needs to be strongly emphasized here when we talk about moral high ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, Russ. So break down the geopolitics that have led us to this point. Why is NATO so obsessed with expanding into the gangster state of Ukraine? And why is Russia dead set against it? <clears throat> well, uh, NATO has been used as an instrument um, um, since the uh, end of world, near the end of world, after the end of World War II, 1949, it was created um, as the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, supposedly to defend Europe, where all the uh, Western and Northern European countries uh, made a military pact against uh, uh, prospective uh, Soviet aggression. Uh, which uh, was never documented as, uh, you know, many critics of that, of NATO at that time said, it, uh, there is no, no evidence whatsoever that the Soviet Union is going to attack the West. Uh, they said they're tearing up all the railroad tracks in East Germany uh, because, uh, you know, they didn't get reparations for the 30 million people that the Germans killed in the in the massive uh, exterminations of villages and so forth, they're taking the railroad tracks and rebuilding their own country with them. They wouldn't take those out if they were going to go west and invade, you know. And these kinds of things went on. But the people, in, even in the intelligence agencies, who didn't agree with that, were eventually uh, moved out of positions and replaced, because the uh, the United States uh, recruited the whole uh, Nazi military intelligence apparatus minus. Uh, a few people who were too conspicuous to be integrated, and a, and a couple of them were killed and uh, executed in Nuremberg. But the Nuremberg prosecutions basically um, were uh, were nullified by U.S. pulling uh, many uh, mass war criminals uh, out of the docket and not prosecuting them, and instead recruiting them into. Uh, the Galen organization, as it became known, G-E-H-L-E-N, Galen organization, um, which uh, was run by Reinhard Galen, who uh, ran intelligence and operations uh, for Hitler and the whole Eastern Front of the, uh, during World War II. Uh, and later, uh, Galen would come to the United States and have meetings with Alan Dulles. 
and spent nine months and they laid out how they were going to proceed and the, the Dulles brothers basically uh, put this apparatus together in uh, the name of the US government. Uh, Dulles had run oper intelligence operations during World War II in Vienna for the United States um, and made contacts with uh, German uh, leadership even then. He had, in fact, he made contacts in the 1930s because he rep, uh, worked with uh, Schroeder Bank and German industry and American industry to develop economic proposals. And he was he was working with basically American Wall Street and uh, and the uh, German uh, industrial Nazi complex uh, prior to World War II. So he he was just getting back with his uh, the people that he knew from that period of time. B built this. Uh, uh, in huge uh, intelligence operational infrastructure, brought in uh, uh, people from uh, the, the uh, extermination programs, uh, uh, like uh, Lois Bruner, um, brought in uh, the uh, components that were allied with Hitler, like the Ukrainian Nazis, uh, from the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, the Banderists, he brought in the Romanian uh, Iron Guard, the Bulgarian Legion, the Hungarian Arrow Cross, the Latvian Legion, et cetera, et cetera. And, and the Croatian Ustashi, which is worth noting again. Um, and uh, this whole thing became part of U.S. capacity to um, uh, continue the war. And so the, the United States you know, developed a policy and was articulated as early as 1947 by George Kennan, uh, although he was anonymous at the time he did it, uh, he, uh, that, that we were going to basically encircle and economically and politically undermine the Soviet Union and make it collapse. So that was U the U.S. policy goals. So, uh, so after World War II, uh, elections were held in uh, Eastern Front countries like Hungary, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, Hungary, I mean, um, uh, Poland and places. And they didn't, you know, they, they elected non-communist governments, you know, and uh, when the uh, Soviets saw, you know, saw it clearly spelled out what they were going to do, they created the Warsaw Pact and they put, they, they, they gave power to the allied parties in those respective countries. And uh, that, that set the line of polarization. But the, uh, all, the, all the German assets from World War II that they used were used for conducting um, uh, operations to uh, undermine those regimes. In Ukraine, World War II didn't end in 1945 like it did for the rest of the world. The war continued and uh, Ukrainian Nazi divisions were going up against the Red Army throughout the late 40s. The war ended in the early 50s. I don't have a date, but it came to an end <clears throat> in the early 50s. And the United States was army, armed them. So if you're, if you're in the Soviet Union, you know that the, what the United States is doing to you. And, uh, and just like the Cambodian, it's no secret, the secret bombing campaign in Cambodia is no secret to the Cambodians. It was, the Soviet Union saw it very clearly. So they weren't you know, when uh, the United States says, well, there's no freedom of stress and no freedom of speech there. Well, they only wanted enough freedom so that their instruments, their prop, you know, th their assets uh, in those countries 
could get up and organize against the Soviet Union. The United States has never stood for freedom uh, when it uh, threatened a government that they support. And so they uh, <clears throat> they propagandized and you know did this radio free Europe and how we're uh, which became uh, a funding instrument uh, that the uh, uh, allied with these uh, assets with the Roma Ukrainian nationalists with the uh, the Bulgarian Legion again the Hungarian Arrow Cross all of these all of these were operating through Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty to broadcast into. Uh, into their countries, uh, respective countries in their uh, native language. And so, um, you know, eventually the United States succeeding uh, in collapsing the uh, regime. When, uh, when Gorbachev became premier, he loosened up and allowed, you know, freedom of the press and, you know, uh, freedom of uh, political action. And he allowed uh, uh, far right wing Americans like Paul Weyrich and the Free Congress Foundation to come into his country and uh, uh, organize political parties and political elections. And they elect they, they worked with Boris Yeltsin to get Boris Yeltsin elected. And they figured they were on their way to taking control of the old uh, Soviet Union. And at that point, uh, basically, Gorbachev was overthrown and the Soviet Union by 1991 ceased to exist. And uh, they had developed, uh, the Free Congress Foundation, Paul Weyrich was, a, was not a conservative. He was, a, he was so far to the right that even the Reagan White House never invited him in to a visit. And uh, I, I, I know from some research and writing I did on that he, he considered himself uh, uh, basically a Coglinite that he admired Father Coglin, the world, you know, the uh, pro-fascist, uh, pro-Nazi uh, radio minister of the 1930s in the United States, openly anti-Semitic, uh, tied to the Christian National Front, uh, which was a, a domestic Nazi movement in the United States. So that's where Weyrich, uh, Weyrich came from, you know, was influenced by when he grew up in Wisconsin. So he's, uh, he's organizing these uh, uh, and tying into these fascist developments uh, and uh, operating for the years. And he's being funded by the United States government through the National Endowment for Democracy for doing this. His board chair of the Free Congress Foundation or vice chair uh, was Robert Kreeble. And Kreeble, Robert Kreeble was a, a Connecticut businessman and he, he was setting this up and he became the vice chair of the National Endowment for Democracy. And they were funneling money into all these groups that uh, uh, that Paul Weyrich was working with in Russia. And so the plan was to collapse this all. And, uh, <clears throat> it, and you know, during the Boris Yeltsin and the Putin years, the National Endowment for Democracy was putting hundreds of millions of dollars into uh, trying to destabilize the regime. So the United States, whatever regime and system, so the United States control that part of the world. Uh, and as they were collapsing the, these regimes, like, like in Bulgaria in uh, the I think in uh, early 90s, uh, the collapse wasn't going far enough. The Bulgarian Communist Party ceased to exist in its own name. Um, but um, you know, people who had been part of it and other people joined together to create a social democratic party, something like the, the labor parties of Western Europe. And uh, the Bush White House wanted 
you know, smash those. And they used NED money uh, to organize student and other student uh, organizations and others. And they uh, violently uh, overthrew the government uh, and forced the, the government to resign, even though it had won elections, you know, that all national international observers says was a free and fair election. That, you know, it wasn't just ending the Soviet Union. It wasn't just ending the communist parties. It was a it was about directly taking control and creating instrumentalities where they could control the politics and the governance and the economic systems of every country on the planet that they could that they could do. And that that was the the geopolitics. So NATO NATO is supposed to be a, a challenge to the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union disappears. NATO has expanded. It went from 15 countries in its founding in 1949 to 30 countries today. What does NATO exist for? Well, the United States used NATO to develop allied forces to invade Iraq. What's that got to do with the North Atlantic Treaty Organization? It just becomes a military pact where the United States funnels money in to uh, uh, bring buy-in and the United States commands and sets control for the policy for the militaries working in unison on the globe. And so it's a, it's a military empire and, uh, um, and the, the, you know, and now the, uh, the Biden administration last year has added China to the list of governments that need to be, uh, challenged and contained, which means they, they're going to, uh, develop a long-term strategy uh, like they did with the Soviet Union to uh, collapse and take control of, uh, of the Chinese economic and political system. And I think once, once they think that they succeeded, they, what was going on with Ukraine was a continued escalations. Anybody looking at the situation and looking at a map would see that if NATO, Ukraine became part of NATO, Russia would be virtually encircled. They were trying to get Georgia, the, the republic on the south, one of the republics on the south flank of Russia and Ukraine in there. And they would have this encirclement coming from the Baltic Sea in the north um, and uh, Finland, all the way down through all the Eastern front countries, Poland, uh, Hungary, Mo Romania, and uh, Bulgaria and, uh, and Ukraine. And, uh, uh, I just saw something recently, uh, and this is kind of kind of interesting. Um, uh, a guy named George Beeb, who used to run the C uh, analysis desk of Russia for the CIA, did a broadcast on Radio Free Europe in December, and uh, he said that uh, <clears throat> the United States was uh, had uh, getting back to Ukraine uh, had uh, put. Um, uh, had signed in last November a new defense cooperation agreement with Ukraine, been supplying military personnel and upgrading the country's ports to fit U.S. warships, supplying it annually with hundreds of millions of dollars in military aid. And so the United, the United States had been conduct, has for years been conducting live fire military exercises on, on the, right on the border of Russia. Uh, with the Baltic countries and others, uh, put siloed missiles in Poland and Romania that could hit, you know, that it would be hard for uh, the Russian military to attack, but those missiles could, you know, take out 
you know, big cities in, in Russia. And then they've been doing naval exercises in the Black Sea for years with Romania, you know, uh, and of course the Black Sea borders not just Ukraine and Romania, but it borders Russia. And so it's a direct threat. And so he's saying that they were actually upgrading the harbors to put in U.S. warships to challenge, you know, which would be a direct challenge to the uh, Russian Navy. And uh, and what was striking about this broadcast, would, because one, this guy was the CIA analyst chief for uh, uh, and uh, on Russia, but also that he was saying on Radio Free Europe, a CIA you know, outlet that, um, that by in two or three years, the United States would have a much stronger and deeper, uh, entrenched, he said more firmly entrenched inside Ukraine. Uh, and that basically if Russia, uh, it did not act, it would become very risky for Russia. He said inaction on the Kremlin's part is risky, said Bibi inaction. Who is, and this guy is now the director of studies at the Center for National Interest in Washington, D.C. He said they don't have a choice. They're either going to surrender or they're going to fight. And uh, so, you know, if, if, you know, he can see it, you know, uh, and, and say it, then uh, why can't uh, American media think for themselves? But, you know, we're still being inundated. My Sunday paper is just filled with articles in Detroit filled with articles uh, about how bad Putin is, you know, uh, columnists and news stories and, you know, crying mothers about worried about their relatives in the country. Yeah, you're right. We did, we, we, we've done that for the Palestinians, right? We do that for the, uh, for the Iraqis. We did it for the Afghans. No, you know, it's just, it's just a, a horrific thing. And so the U.S. global strategy is basically thinks that event they can draw they can make the situation untenable for russia over the long term anybody with a forecast like a baby's forecast can see that the russia is being militarily encircled and overwhelmed and they either uh fight or they surrender and uh so once they take control once they bait russia in through these threats and the provocations and killing Russian citizens. Where's the outrage when the United States backed Nazi battalions like Azov and C-14 and others uh, go to Eastern Russia and kill Russian speaking people when they pass laws saying that Ukrainian is the only official language and no documents or any transactions or communications in media can be done in the Russian language. When when those things are happening, where's the outrage? Well, that's U.S. policy. The State Department didn't told them to get met, didn't tell people to get angry about it, so they don't. They take their, you know, the the, the media. Uh, even somebody who uh, a general who was comparing uh, the bombing of Baghdad uh, because he brought up the bombing of Baghdad, uh, NPR cut him off. <laughs> you know. Um, it's 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 in a disgraceful condition, and once I, I, I diverted away. Once they have, their in their scenario, they have Russia controlled, then then China is encircled, uh, from India on the south, Japan on the west, and Russia on the north. 
and then they start working on the, aggressively on the collapse of, of China. And then the U.S. has a, a world empire. And basically, they, they have um, more or less fundamental, they control the fundamental features of the world system and the world economy. And I think that's where the, what the game plan is. All right. So what is the significance then of the uh, 82nd Airborne being deployed to Eastern Europe for quote unquote humanitarian purposes? Well, the 82nd Airborne is the first call for military interventions anywhere. Uh, airborne units, as you know, can be parachuted in the artillery um, and uh, the infantry uh, and uh, <clears throat> the engineers can all be parachuted in anywhere in the world that they think they can safely land them. And, uh, you know, they're, they're more highly trained. Um, and uh, I, I can speak a little from experience on this. In 1968, 1970, I was in an airborne brigade in the U.S. Army uh, in uh, Europe, in NATO. <laughs> and uh, so, um, you know, when uh, war broke out in 1970 in... Uh, in uh, you know uh, Palestinian territory, Israel and uh, and uh, Arab War, the uh, the U.S. Uh, Airborne Brigade in Germany was put on the tarmac and waited for three days to see if they were going to be airdropped into uh, into the Middle East on behalf of Israel. So that's what they're there for, and so th they're there to serve any contingency. And you do not need the 82nd Airborne to help people uh, who are refugees resettle. You know, uh, it's it's a clearly intended to be a psychological, political uh, dagger. You know, uh, pointed to the east. You know, they're they're stationed near the Russian border, relatively speaking. Not they're not stationed in Italy. In Italy, you have the 173rd Brigade, uh, Airborne Brigade. So you're bringing these folks from North Carolina, you know, to uh, to sit there. Uh, you already have another brigade. And the 173rd was doing training and operations in Ukraine a few years ago. Uh, they still may be until these recent events. Uh, so they're supplementing, the, I think, the 173rd with the 82nd Airborne. Um, and once the United States gets involved, pre presumably, in a, as you know very well, incidents can be created to create a provocation that the United States uses to respond to so that they become engaged. And once American blood is shed, then the public is like, we don't care what the law is, go in and kill those folks, you know, go kill them Ruskies, you know, you know, kill Putin, you know, and uh, they're setting them over there for a, a potential uh, engagement in, in the war, despite Biden's words that the American troops won't get involved. Yeah, to add in to the significance of the 82nd yeah. Airborne, at various times it has been known as uh, what is called a rapid response force. I'm not sure if it yeah. still has that designation or not, but yeah. more or less it should theoretically be able to deploy anywhere in the world for combat um, yeah. within, I think, 48 hours, maybe it's 72 or something like that. But um, the 82nd Airborne is typically at the spear point of a lot of U.S. military efforts. Um, you know, to give you an example, I believe with both Grenada uh, in 1981 or 82 or something, quick invasion, yeah, 83, 83 yeah. cuts right, yeah. and um, Haiti in uh, 93. 
before i think it was under clinton um you know the 82nd airborne was the lead unit in both of these they're based out of fort bragg they're yeah. not a special forces unit but they are a, a rapid response light infantry unit so they're much more elite than a conventional force yeah. uh, they theoretically have the capabilities like russ was saying for almost any kind of combat so yeah this is a an elite unit you know this isn't really the type of unit that you would normally send to go hand out candy to uh you know orphan children or something like that that's right they invaded uh they were the invasion force for uh, dominican republic in 1965 too yeah yeah i mean this is yeah. what they do they're not yeah. they um, they're vietnam. not spectators that's right they were in vietnam too oh yeah now that we've got the backdrop out of the way, let's open things up a bit and try to provide some insights to the situation. So first off, why is this happening now? Now, Danny, you and I, we've spoken about this uh, a little bit privately a few days ago. We think it's related to the breakdown in the COVID narrative. Could you get into that a bit for the audience, please? Yes. Um... Yeah, I'm going to expand it a little bit if I can. In fact, um, why now is the question. Um, I think it has really a lot to do with the state of cap global capitalism worldwide. I think that global capitalism right now is facing um, what could be its final days, its end days. And what I mean by this is um, it's facing what's called an uh, overaccumulation process. In other words, uh, what's happening is we're having machines replace workers. Uh, workers are then falling into through the cracks. Uh, there's precarious work or gig economy, but that's not really functioning. Uh, people don't have jobs. And it's, it's creating a worldwide, we have now a surplus population of people. These are people that will never, ever work, um, will probably never work in their lives. If they do work, they will never, uh, they barely be able to feed themselves. And this surplus population, therefore, doesn't have any money to spend. And when there's no money to spend, there's no consumption. And when there's no consumption under capitalism, the system falls. So um, on the productive side, the, uh, the ruling class that owns the means of production, meaning all the technology, all the factories, all the manufacturing bases, et cetera, um, they keep producing and they keep producing. They have to in order to capital for it to, to expand. But then if this stuff is not being consumed, because the populations throughout the world have less and less money. And then we run into what's called a crisis of overproduction in capitalism. And I believe that the only way that the capitalism, capitalist system that can survive at this juncture is through two means. And so I really wanna look at the question of the issue in, in Ukraine by looking one at Ukraine and by looking to it, Western civilization. And when I say the US, I also mean Canada and Britain and uh, European uh, nations uh, who are falling into the same rut, an overpopulation of people that want to work, that are capable of working, but a private sector that cannot provide them work. And therefore they don't have any money. And this is true in all Western civilizations right now. There's not one capitalist country in the world that's functioning right now. And, and, and that's, you know, for people that scream and yell about socialism, that's never been ever seen in the world, which is another issue. Um, there is no capitalist country. So what, 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 what am I saying? Here? Well, uh, the, basically a new model, I think, has been adopted by the ruling class. And that a model is basically repression at home. 
In other words, the use of technology, which I know we'll get into further discussions when we get back to our series on fascism, but new technologies of tracking systems uh, uh, pushed forth by companies like Palantir and, and, and just thousands of other companies that Palantir owns are being used at home uh, for repressive te uh, uh, te techniques to repress people who have no money <laughs> and can't buy things and therefore have a tendency to want to organize and, and, and to stop them from organizing is we need repression. Now we, we saw this in the 1950s and 60s with COINTELPRO and Operation Chaos. And, and I think so that I think that there's a, an element of, of, of this that we have to understand that repression uh, through the use of technology is good for business. I mean, you actually can sell this technology all over the world to repressive regimes, including the U.S., and, you know, roll a profit out. And, and since you can't make a profit on selling Wonder Bread anymore um, at home, repression is very, very good for capitalist accumulation. The second is imperialism abroad, and they go hand in hand. Imperialism is broad means more weapon sales. And so within the last week, Biden has, has given another $350 million in inflated dollars to fascist Ukraine. Why? Because the capitalist model right now, the U.S. is being supported by a more than a military industrial complex. Uh, it's, it's a surveillance complex, military complex. And imperialism at home is the only way that you can control some of these countries um, uh, and at the same time, make a huge profit off of weapon sales. And I think this is really something that's going on. And I think that we need to be able to, 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 to see this, uh, that, that this is really big business. I mean, uh, let's, let's look at the Trump administration. Trump held up weapon sales to pressure Biden. Pressure Biden. Well, the, the armament industry didn't like that at all. So what did Trump do? He unfroze those weapon sales. Okay, uh, NATO is weaponizing right now. Well, uh, 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 let's take a look at Adam Schiff's statement. We're fighting Russia and Ukraine, so we don't have to fight them over here. Uh, for people that don't know, the Schiff family goes back to the 1700s. Uh, Schiff is, is, is the CIA. There can be no foreign policy in the United States that doesn't have anything to do with arms sales. And when we get into our Taiwan, we're going to say to the same thing. But Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, they all encouraged the expansion of NATO. Russ is absolutely right. NATO should have died in 1991 when the Soviet Union was over. There was no more reason for NATO, but NATO turned into a basically um, a weaponized uh, uh, organization uh, run by Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the media is warmongering this thing. Why? Because the media is itself supported by the military industrial complex. So the U.S. military expenditures make no strategic sense. They're pure waste. This is money we could be spending at home, but instead we choose to uh, subsidize uh, the fascists in Ukraine. So yes, in terms of the COVID, again, I think that the COVID uh, uh, the way it was rolled out was also a, a, a way to deflect attention from a failing capitalist system. Capitalism was failing far, far earlier than COVID was rolled out. 
and COVID's rollout, you know, provided, you know, a huge boost to the economy, $33 billion to the pharmaceuticals uh, that's supposed to have all trickled down, but of course it doesn't trickle down. And so we really see that the military armaments industry is the fourth branch of the United States government. And the arms sales from drug companies. I mean, if you've ever seen these people, they go to doctor's offices with briefcases. They open the briefcases. They tell the doctor, look, I don't know if you're using, you know, this drug on your patient, psychotropic, but, you know, you really should be. We really want to sell it to you. And then the patient becomes the person that's asked to take the psychotropic. Well, the only difference now is that we they walk around and sell weapons with briefcases. Instead of patients, the weapons are used on countries. So you have private military industrial complex plus private co contractors, private military contractors. And then, of course, the last thing that I want to say about this is that uh, uh, the entire stock market in the United States is based on armaments. I mean, if you take away Lockheed and Raytheon and Rand Corporation and all these uh, the military expenditures, the entire United States economy would die and it would die all over the world. And so we're looking now really at um, it doesn't matter what what kind of laws are passed. Um, remember, the Senate said no more sales to Saudi Arabia because of Yemen. Oh, they're selling. Believe me, they're selling Saudi Arabia right now. They need the money. They got to keep the stocks up. Remember the Boland Amendment? And we're supposed to sell any weapons staying in Nicaragua? Screw that. Fuck that. We'll sell that kind of thing. The CIA has lied ever since Truman about foreign policy. When the Dulleses were running the, the, the entire agency as an independent force, the CIA in the 1950s. And they've been lying to all presidents since. Most presidents have no idea of what the CIA does. And Biden certainly has no idea. I don't think he knows the alphabet anymore. But weapon sales happen to be both legal and they happen to be both illegal. And they're really the billion dollar industry. Look, we spent a billion dollars in Syria. And where did the money go? Went to death squads like Al Qaeda. Yeah. And, and, and now we're sending more money now to Ukraine. And where is the money going? It's going to the Azov Brigade. And it's going to um, 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 Nazis. And so um, it's a very, very uh, difficult situation that we're facing right now. I will uh, say, uh, just in closing, and then uh, let's pick up the conversation from that point on, is that we do know some things that are, 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 are happening right now. This, the media is treating this as if they, in the same way that they treated uh, World War I. You know, German baby babies on German bayonets, and um, you know Germans looking like gorillas. And I mean, this is—I've never seen any any. I I haven't seen anything like the way the the the, the United States is uh, is pushing this war to people who have under, no understanding of where Ukraine is. And that's the danger: is that when people don't have an understanding of where something is, then they really generally have no problem when people are trying to send weapons over there. Um, since in the last few days, let's talk about Russia, what's Russia done, then I'll, I'll be quiet. Russia's eliminated 900 Ukraine military facilities, 975 facilities of Ukrainian military infrastructure, 23 command points, um, uh, uh, communication centers of the armed forces of Ukraine, three radar stations, 31 air defense systems, um, uh, uh, S-300s, 
uh, 48 radar, radar locators, eight combat planes, seven helicopters, 11 unmanned aerial vehicles, 223 tanks. I'm talking, this is within the last few days. 28 jets, 39 multiple launch rockets. This is an invasion of Ukraine. And so now, you know, I've got to, to, to because of my politics, I have to make the statement that the Russian invasion of Ukraine should be opposed by all class conscious workers. I do not support the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I think it's a mistake. Uh, I think that China has indicated that as well. Uh, China has come out as well and is not supporting this. I understand why it's being done. I understand why it's being done, but I think it, it does not benefit workers anywhere in the world because it's a form of nationalism. And I think it's a very, very dangerous thing to do. It's spearheaded by American imperialism and it's a relentless expansion of NATO military alliance that's going to cause, and it's certainly not going to help Russia, okay? And the sanctions that are going to be levied are going to decimate working people, and the conflict in Ukraine can develop into World War III. And therefore, you know, I must say personally, I do not support the invasion into Ukraine of the Soviet Union, of, of Russia, excuse me. However, I do understand it. So let me stop at this point and-, and All right, if I could uh, jump back in here and get things into COVID again, because there are a few points about this that need to be raised. Um, first off, um, in terms of like shock and awe and all this stuff that you've been hearing about uh, at news and from the mainstream or rather legacy media for the last uh, couple of days, uh, you have to understand that uh, this was a big part of what the lockdowns uh, themselves were. And um, certainly, I know a lot of you listening to this are probably aware of that uh, recent report that came out from John Hopkins University, I believe, that indicated that the lockdowns were largely ineffective for containing the virus, which um, is pretty evident, I think, to most people with uh, common sense. So, the real purpose of the lockdowns was the shock at all that I just said before. And why do I say that? Well, if you have uh, read an excellent book by Alfred McCoy called A Question of Torture, uh, he goes into a lot of uh, those fascinating behavioral modification programs that the CIA and the Pentagon ran uh, beginning in the 50s and probably have still continued in some form in various private military companies to this day. But uh, that's a digression. So. Everybody looks at all of the woo-woo stuff that went on with this, um, you know, the LSD and that kind of thing. But in reality, it was actually discovered that there were some rather simple techniques that could be used uh, to induce trauma in individuals and then later in societies. Uh, one of the first and foremost of these was isolation started with studies, uh, I believe, by Harold Wolf and uh, Donald Hebb, who was the mentor to Ewan Cameron. And uh, basically, they would take people, uh, in some cases, military men, and they would put them in a box with uh, totally cut off with any sensory input. And it was found that uh, usually after two to three days, people would really start to lose their minds. They would experience in-depth auditory hallucinations, not unlike what people have seen on mescaline. 
specifically. I'm not entirely sure why. Um, and all kinds of other craziness. Uh, they would also begin to disassociate from time, how it was structured. They could sort of uh, become unstuck in their memories, all kinds of fascinating things, at least from the perspective of interrogation. So you've gradually seen the process of isolation being spread to all kinds of interesting aspects of society since uh, these quote unquote revelations uh, were made in the 50s and 60s. For instance, solitary confinement is epidemic in the United States prison system, as are repeat offenders and the frequent phenomena of people coming out of prisons more violent than they went in. Gee, I wonder why that would be. So now you've just induced your entire populace to a prolonged period of isolation in which there is certainly ample evidence that there was a profound uh, assault on their mental health, to put it mildly. I mean, in terms of skyrocketing suicide rates, drug abuse. I mean, all of these things were already problematic and it's only become even more so with the lockdowns, especially among men in their working age, uh, prime working years. Uh, this was something that I actually just got into recently with uh, my friend Pierce and our uh, show on the crisis of capitalism in terms of mental health. But the lockdowns were just devastating for all of this. And it's not really acknowledged, but I mean, this has already put a lot of uh, strain on people. I mean, I think in a very real sense, society is kind of functioning in a fugue state, not unlike uh, what somebody would experience from PTSD or something like that presently, which I think is one of the reasons why we should be very scared by all of this. But this is an important aspect of all of this. And um, I think another thing that you have to sort of keep in mind is that, um, you know, I know it's very controversial in terms of the vaccines, uh, with the virus response, with the vaccine and all this stuff, I and mean, kind of setting aside uh, the vaccines for the time being, there's a lot that could be said about that, but I frankly cannot say that because of uh, various reasons. So what I will say about this is that um, a big part of this polarization that Danny is alluding to is being driven by um, a lot of tech companies that are involved in data mining and these kinds of operations. And this is really the, the really true weapons of mass destruction of the 21st century. It's big data, it's data collection, and it ultimately leads to all of these different things that we've spoken a lot about, of predictive models, of predictive profiling for people and all of this uh, futuristic kind of stuff. So you have, uh, a gold mine of this with social media and all this other stuff with Facebook, with Twitter. Uh, but there's only so far that you can do with the data collection and that. And you have companies like Palantir. I mean, it's, you know, a fascinating thing when you uh, track the uh, progression of this. Uh, Teal had developed, uh, Peter Teal and uh, the Palantir executives had developed a relationship with John Poindexter uh, around the time he was doing the total information awareness thing back in the early knots after 9-11. Uh, Poindexter kind of became an unofficial lobbyist, and shortly thereafter, Teal starts setting up um, Facebook, or not setting up, rather, but funding massively Facebook. Facebook later becomes a major goldmine for uh, collecting data on people, all kinds of stuff. And it was very useful for companies like Cambridge Analytica and HR Gary, which were also companies that Palantir had uh, helped on the side a little bit here and there and kind of kept an eye on what they were doing. 
all the while uh, looking at some of the Facebook that uh, the Teal financed uh, empire was collecting. So all of this is going on and uh, it has sowed a lot of division, but there's only so far you can go with all this stuff in terms of accuracy for these predictive modelings. And that is most likely the real reason why Teal is getting out of Facebook now. It's served its purpose and it's time to move on to the next thing. Yeah. Next well, thing is medical data. That is the next step to creating even more accurate predictive models for uh, societies at large and individuals. And Palantir is the company that is getting a lot of the medical data from the vaccine response right now. So I think this is one of the big things that Teal has actually moved on to presently, because this is uh, going to be, I mean, if you think that what has been done to society through social media has been devastating, you haven't seen anything to what could be done with access to medical data combined with the data that's already been harvested. So this is only going to get worse. And you combine that with the fact that society has already been traumatized through this prolonged period of isolation to the fact that they have uh, been inoculated with how a authoritarian uh, structure would be implemented in society in the, in the event of an emergency response, such as a major war, for instance. And then you combine it with the fact that all of this medical data and so forth is being harvested by these private, uh, essentially glorified intelligence companies like Palantir here you have quite a witch's brew there interesting to know too that the uh the founder of moderna and uh one of the uh, major proponents or one of the major figures behind the vaccine from that particular company uh also came out of the uh, stanford uh, facilities as well interesting guy look him up uh, sometime for all you listeners out there uh danny real quick what did you want to add i'm worried i'm worried about world war three i'm worried about an expansion of nato I'm worried about missiles being put on the border of Ukraine, okay? I, I've, I've already listed exactly what's going on. This is a full-blown invasion of Ukraine. This, there's not going to be any holding back. There's not going to be any, any that Zelensky can meet. There's not going to be any talks. The United States not, is not going to allow this. They already have in play, already put forward by Stratford, is the whole brand new intermarian concept, which has been all part of this Russian thing, all right? And Stratford is a private intelligence think tank whose customers include Department of Homeland Security, Marines, and Defense Intelligence Agency. In 2009, they started mentioning what's called the intermarian. It's a concept advanced, and we don't, I don't need to get into it right now, but 394 mentions of intermarian since December 2011 by Stratford, that's who's in charge of what's going on right now in Ukraine. That is who is in charge, or the military-industrial complex is moving into Ukraine, okay, to take it over so that they can destroy Russia. And now if, 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 we, if, if we're going to support Russia going in there, then we're looking at Third World War. And that's what I'm worried about. That's why I was mentioning that the new capitalist model for accumulation of capital, since it can no longer sell goods anywhere in the world, China is outselling it everywhere in the world. Down here in Ecuador, China is the largest car manufacturer and seller in the world in Latin America. All they have to sell is repressive software, repressive technology to control people at home, and imperialist 
bombs and war efforts to contain people abroad. That is where we're entering into economically within the capitalist system. And Ukraine is simply a part of that. Representative Juan Vargas, a Democrat from California and an LGBTQ ally in the United States was a featured participant at an anti-LGBTQ event in Ukraine. And this, is, this was last year in September. And this is a series of the Fellowship Probe Foundation, a secretive religious group that runs a national prayer breakfast. Well, they have a national prayer breakfast for Ukraine. And Vargas is a member, okay? And there are a number of, I mean, and we're talking within the last few months that this, this, this happened. They had a picture of Vargas attending the side panel outside with a far right Polish think tank member, um, Representative Brian Fitzpatrick, a Republican from Pennsylvania, uh, was at the prayer meeting for Ukraine. Um, Vargas um, is pro-choice and he has a 100% rating. Why he was there, we don't know. But what we do know that the Ukraine National Prayer uh, Breakfast is organized by Pavlo Ungurian, a former member of Parliament, long history with the American uh, 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 intelligence operations and the family to push conservative positions in Ukraine. This is exactly what's going on in Poland, exactly what's going on in Hungary, exactly what that's why we're doing the, the, the show on the, on the world tour of fascism. This is just one part of it, okay? Ukraine is being used by Christian fundamentalists in the United States, and they have since 2016 They've co-chaired with Catholics and religious leaders. For example, a lobbyist who went to Ukraine, former representative Jim Slattery, okay? he, he, he's attended many uh, anti-LGBTQ events in Ukraine. Okay, um, I guess in closing, what I want to say is that where my big concern is, is how clero-fascism is playing into the Ukrainian controversy right now and how Putin has been backed into a corner like a rat. Yes. And anything he does could create third world war, could create balkanization of all of Russia and could create the Stratford Intermarian, which is basically taking over the mother island, they call it, okay, from Russia all the way to England. And that would be complete fascist territory. It would be all through the Balkans. The pivot point would be Poland. It wouldn't be Germany anymore because Germany is too pro-America. This is all what's going on. This is what's happening. Danny, that's really important information, that prayer breakfast stuff. It, uh, it's not, you know, people should understand this isn't just about get a group of people getting together and doing some praying and going back home. This is... Uh, no. Much listen, more, to Hungarian, much more. listen to Hungarian in 2019. He yeah. says, quote, throughout Western Christian civilization, which includes both America and Europe, there's a tradition of cooperation between conservative politicians, a kind of, quote, network, cooperation of people with Christian values, with the understanding that their country needs to be built based on them. Prayer breakfasts are held in almost 100 countries around the world and are a point of attraction of like-minded people. And one of the biggest prayer breakfasts you'll find is in the Ukraine. Yeah, and the biggest one you'll find is in the Pentagon, um, U.S. Pentagon. <laughs> uh, you know, they, they, they're doing, they've been doing them for years there. I mean, th this is, this is or, like, or, you know, people who are or, trying to organize the Crusades, you know. 
now. Are there going to be some real consequences for the West in general for the conflict, most notably at the pump? Yes, we'll try to reorient things towards the Middle East oil, but that will take time. So guys, what happens to Europe if Putin cuts off the gas flow in the middle of winter, for instance? Danny, what are your thoughts on this to start off? Okay, first of all, first of all, the, the, the news that I have right now is that the, um, uh, the gas is still flowing. Uh, Gazprom continues supplying gas transit to Europe via Ukraine is normal. Uh, even though uh, 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 Russia has, let me put it this way, Russia has not entered Ukraine to secure the Donbass. Russia has entered Ukraine to, to take over Ukraine. Okay, they've had it. To stop they've you. had it. They, they've had it since 1991, the promises that wouldn't move east, wouldn't move east. And as Russ said, now they're completely surrounded. They've had it. So what's what's go, what's going to be the fallout for, for Americans, for example? I think that this is some of the things that, that Americans should be really, really thinking about as they begin to decide whether they want to start uh, uh, supporting some of this. Uh, not only are they going to see uh, uh, higher prices at the pump, all right? Um, we're going to see inflation go beyond the roof. You think inflation's bad now? What this will do to inflation will be unbelievable. Richard Wolf just had a program on this, um, uh, 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 this whole thing. Um, it's going to drive inflation through the roof, so it's going to create incredible economic hardship, both on European people and on American people. It's also going to create more stress, more tension, coupled with the COVID you spoke about, Stephen. It's just more stress, getting up each day, no jobs, no stress, constant barrage from the media. But on an economic level, it's going to be mean higher prices. On a social level, it's going to be more repression at home. And, 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 and on a foreign policy level, it's going to be more oppression abroad. Um. You know, I just uh, was sent a, a, a news notice that uh, the German uh, 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 prime minister is uh, committing another hundred billion dollars, European equivalent, a hundred billion dollars uh, for upgrading the German military. They have to. They're hooked. That's it. They, they can't produce it. They don't produce anything. They produce cars. Not on housing, not on lowering no. price for education to educate more people, not on any number of things for social development. They're going to put it into rightist military formations and, um, you know, and the people will be looted again. The defense system is like a giant amoeba that seeks food to grow and the food it needs is war profits. So NATO exists to NATO exists to manage the risk it created by its own existence. And you can see we have this giant Wurlitzer that, that was spoken about in the 1950s, right? Right now, screaming war at the American people. And in 2018, 18 new members of Congress, former CIA members, were elected to, to the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is the war party. It's the party of war. Yeah, the, uh, uh, the, the report on this uh, German thing said, by the way, the military spending will be 2% of the entire German gross national product. There you go. They're being pushed into doing this by the United States. By NATO, by NATO demand. 
That's right. By NATO demand, which is the U.S. And that's why the U.S. wants Ukraine to be in NATO, but Ukraine will never be in NATO. Yeah. Even no matter what wars what happen, Ukraine will never be in NATO. It's because in, 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 because you can't over you can't overrule the United States on a boat. U.S. wants everybody to be in NATO. Yeah. Uh, to your point, Danny, there wasn't one year after the collapse of the Soviet Union where U.S. military spending uh, was frozen uh, or decreased. Every year it continued in response to the political economy of the military system. It without had nothing to do with the existence of the Soviet Union as such, you know. Look at the 1980s, and when 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 you had when you had Robert Gates, who became the head of the CIA, uh, he was he was uh, handing in phony reports over inflating the uh, uh, the military capabilities of the Soviet Union, so that we would be able to put more money in the military complex. Right. We don't build anything. We don't build homes. We don't build anything anymore. We don't do anything. We import Chinese goods and we build nothing but war, war machines and, and, and so forth and so on. I don't see any way out of it. It's an economic problem as much as it is a problem of war. Yeah. Sanctions on Russia is going to worsen, lengthen inflation, could cause an economic crash. American people really need to ask themselves. Is it worth it for them to support these politicians who want to argue over two provinces in Ukraine so that they can face $7 a, a gallon of uh, uh, gas prices at the pump and not be able to find food? This is not going to be a popular economic and social stance when the chickens come home to roost. And the businessmen and women are chomping at the bit to raise profits by raising prices. Well, what a great excuse. Now they have, first they had COVID to raise the prices. Now they're gonna raise the prices again, they'll cite Ukraine and the sanctions. So how can this ever have, have, have a happy ending for any American? Okay, no. let's uh, talk about China. Um, they threatened an invasion of Taiwan. Uh, I personally don't think Russia would have made such a bold move if they didn't have some kind of uh, agreement with China in play possibly. Uh, but then again, it seems like maybe there's been some reluctance more recently on behalf of the Chinese. But both nations appear to have collaborated together in putting down the attempted coup in Kazakhstan shortly before. So first off, what was the significance of the failed coup in Kazakhstan? Uh, Danny, you got any thoughts yeah, on I that? Can I can speak to it, yes. What I, for those who don't know where Kazakhstan is, it's one of the uh, Stan countries. It's a former, former part of the Soviet, former Soviet Union. On January 10th, uh, actually January 2nd, um, well, here, it's called the, the 2022 Kazakh unrest, also known as Bloody January. And basically, and that's, I'm talking of this year. And basically what happened was there were, there, they, the liquefied gas prices that people use in Kazakhstan to motor their vehicles and also their homes and energy and stuff doubled in price due to austerity, austerity programs by the rulers, okay? Well, that's when the protests began. All right, the oil, the, the, the Kazakhstan is an oil producing city in Zanazen, where Zanazen is in Kazakhstan, it's an oil producing city. And the protests that started there and they spread quickly to other cities in the country, especially the nation's largest city in Almaty, which saw demonstrations turn into violent riots fueled by rising dissatisfaction with the government and equality. And then it got out of hand it, when, uh, during a whole week long violent unrest and crackdowns 
227 people were killed and over 9,900 were arrested. So what started out with, with double the gas prices, all right, turned into a, a complete uh, a, a class war. Why? Because capitalism is not working in Kazakhstan very well at all either. And so people use this as an occasion to say, I've had it with it all. I've had it with the oil prices, the corrupt governments, everything. So, I'm, so what, what happened is that there's basically a dictatorship in the country. Uh, you have the two positions. You have a president and a head of security. They're both oligarchs. They're fighting amongst each other. The poor people have nothing. So they called on Russia to come in. And Russia, this is what's important. Russia came into Kazakhstan. Why? Because Kazakhstan is a member of kind of a NATO that has been put together by um, the uh, governments in the East. Um, the Russian Federation? The Collective Security Treaty Organization. Ah. Okay, now the Collective Security Treaty Organization um, is made up of member states, uh, just like NATO. It is exactly the opposite of NATO, all right? And the unrest in Kazakhstan caught international observers by surprise because, um, like for example, Belarus is a member, uh, Russia is a member. Uh, well, if you, it's like NATO, if you touch one of our people, you've touched us all, we get to come in like the US does, okay? So Russia went in and Russia put the, um, the uh, uh, a riot down. And that's why it was called a bloody riot. Now, the same thing, thing happened in Ecuador in 2019. Gas prices went up uh, almost double, and uh, uh, the people went nuts in the streets. And uh, we had 1,900 arrests and four or 500 people killed. Okay, so, so anything, any incendiary type of thing like this can, this is what, this is what's so dangerous about Ukraine. So anyway, uh, the constitutional order was restored on January 7th. And um, but the president did, during the time that the riot was going on, put out orders to use deadly force against protesters, authorizing all troops to shoot to kill. Okay, they, they can, can consider all protesters bandits and terrorists. Okay. So on January 10th, after killing a whole bunch of people, and Russia came in, um, the president announced that the, uh, the troops so that made up the security uh, force uh, of, of, of the East uh, would be withdrawing from the country. And on January 13th, they started generally withdrawing. And a new uh, defense, uh, a new prime minister was appointed to kind of clean all things up, which of course it didn't. Meanwhile, the people are still living, okay? under a dysfunctional economic system. And uh, the government blamed it on foreign trained Islamist radicals. He said, oh, it wasn't, we, it wasn't just the Kazakhstans, they were trained by the Islamists. And so you start to see it, you start to see where I'm going with this. This is, uh, this is another country being exploited for its resources like Ukraine, Kazakhstan has 40% of all the uranium in the world. Right? Ukraine has so many minerals, it's unbelievable. That's why Shell is supporting Ukraine. Russia you know, is, is, is in there. China's in there. Uh, it's the resources. It's all about extraction. These are ex extraction countries, just like in South America. 
extract lithium, extract minerals, extract oil. Who's going to own them? Who's going to take, who's going to run them? Who's going to, and that's what, that's what we see going on. All right. So let's get into China. Uh, Russ, do you have any thoughts on China's uh, moves and all of this? Well, uh, they've been increasing their military spending for a number of years. And uh, 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 the United States has been goading um, uh, Japan uh, and India and Australia. And, and they came up with this pact, um, which uh, would uh, exist for the purpose of uh, containing China. And uh, Taiwan has been a base for operations against China for ever since uh, uh, Taiwan was called Formosa and the Chinese nationalist Chiang Kai-shek invaded the island, killed about 10,000 Formosans and set up the Taiwan government. It's never been seen, even, even John Foster Dulles said that it, it wasn't a uh, legitimate uh, uh, government from an international law perspective. Um, and, but of course, that never stopped the United States from uh, funding it and making it an angel in its uh, world, world scheme. Um, uh, the, by the way, the United States is apparently now also uh, pressing Japan to reclaim the Kuril Islands in the Pacific, you know, that uh, Japan lost as part of the settlement of World War II. There's an interesting uh, a thought behind that, Russ, and that is I read recently is that many people are saying that there's a lot of gold and lily money in, underneath those islands. Mm, well, you know, <laughs> there you go. Uh, so, they're, you know, they're trying to uh, uh, get Japan to become more nationalistic. The United States supported the Abe regime and admin, uh, government, and uh, uh, they're trying to geek it up. Uh, and... Uh, it seems right now, you know, with Modi in India and uh, uh, the population there, and of course, there's his, there was historic border conflicts uh, decades ago between India and uh, China in the in Nepal region. Um, so they're they're trying to uh, uh, you know really create a uh, NATO like alliance against China uh, now, and so. Uh, China's facing the same question that Russia faced in Ukraine. Do you allow a, uh, uh, an illegal construct of a country to become a base for hostilities against you? That's right. Uh, you know, and that's, that's, the, that's the comparison in the situation today. And, um, you, know, uh, you know, the United States has been, uh, you know, been just as they were doing... Uh, naval exercises in the Black Sea, they're doing the same thing in the uh, straits uh, around China. And, um, you know, these things aren't, don't sit well. You know, Russia, uh, China really, when uh, the U.S. lost a, uh, a, a spy aircraft uh, to a crash in the uh, sea, they, the United States was making a big issue about how China is going to, Navy is going to run in and try and capture that so they can get the intelligence off of it from and the technology off the airplane. China says, we don't give a damn about that airplane. You know, we're not going to be bothered with that. But they were trying to use uh, a U.S. failure as a, as a pretext to get people alarmed about Russia uh, or about China, I'm sorry. So th there seems to be an intentional uh, uh, policy 
of just uh, of escalating against Russia and China. And, uh, you know, while they were together at the United Nations Security Council and, you know, uh, and, and on certain boats, uh, you know, uh, the United States is trying to now drive a wedge between China and Russia uh, after the Ukrainian invasion. And they, there may be a sep, you know, I, I see uh, China probably trying to separate out. If they think that they can get something to their advantage, they may negotiate, you know, something where there's some, uh, the United States backs off for them for a little while. But the United States isn't going to back off for a long time because, as you said, China's a, a, a huge uh, economic competitor. And, uh, um, and, you know, the long term growth is in China's favor against uh, U.S. Uh, multinationals and business interests. So um, I think the I think it's uh, just a matter of time. You know, I think uh, Biden uh, is trying to take on the whole world at once. He's trying to do something so that the uh, the uh, ruling elites in the United States, you know, the uh, think that he is the vehicle that's going to say, you know, that represent them best uh, rather than say a Republican challenger in 2024. Well, you know, we took the, he took his build back better that failed, which we knew it would because it was a joke. And he replaced it with uh, Ukrainian freedom fighters. Uh, everybody's a freedom fighter. Now, Afghan freedom fighters, uh, the Nicaraguan freedom fighters or Ukrainian freedom fighters. And again, it just gives a, a more sense sentience to to Orwell's uh, notion of the use of political language uh, and how it solidifies air. Um, it's 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 truly amazing. But to answer your question, Stephen, in terms of uh, Russia and and China, I did, did did China did Russia call China and say, hey, this is what I'm going to do. Do you have my back? I doubt it. I doubt it. I doubt. I I I think they probably let them know what they were going to do. But China has been very clear, and, and they're not supportive of Russia's invasion. Um, their, their, their basic policy toward countries throughout the world is we don't really care what you do inside your countries. If you want to set up a fascist government or whatever, as long as we can get our resources and you abide by your contracts. I mean, that's really the, that the Chinese position. They don't mingle in the internal affairs of a country uh, other than through economics by loaning money for long durations of time and low interest. So I don't think uh, uh, Russia has the support of China. I think China's got its own problems. And I think China is facing a, a downturn in the global capitalist economy, which for them is going to mean they're not going to be able to continue 8% growth or 5% growth because they won't have any place to sell their goods. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think China uh, was closer uh, to Russia before the invasion, you know, uniting against uh, sanctions and against, uh, uh, you know, what they... I think both saw as, as U.S. aggressive policies uh, short before the invasion. You know, it, it was manifested at the Olympics where they sat together and so forth. Right. So, um, you know, but but the you know the the invasion uh, the invasion no matter what the circumstances and how you can understand their point of view on it is still something that uh, you know uh, I think. I think, you know, uh, true anti-imperialists are going to have to, you know, develop a position. But I think that uh, Ukraine should be declared a non-military zone that neither uh, NATO or Russia controls. Absolutely. 
it should be a demilitarized zone completely. Yeah. Um, uh, but, but, but again, you know, you, you've got the Sabota party in there and, and 3000 member Azov battalion. I mean, they, they've been, they've been armed and equipped uh, since the werewolf brigades after world war two, um, you know, when those stay out, stay behind, it's never stopped. It's right. never stopped. I mean, I, I mean, the, 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 the Ukrainian National Corps is Azov's civilian arm, and it's responsible for coordinating with and recruiting neo-Nazis and white separatists um, right now. And all the over, national all over the world. You're right, Danny. All over the world, they're doing that. Azov Street Patrol Organization, the National Drazina in, in 2018 was set up. It's got the aim of restoring Ukrainian order, all based on religion, by the way. Also, the right sector, a loose formation of neo-Nazis and football ultras who supplied street muscle to the Maidan uprising uh, and, and later involved in Odessa. You mentioned C-14, Russ, Ukrainian yeah. neo-Nazi gang that receives government funding. It's been responsible for lethal Roma pogroms, LGBT violence. The 14th a reference to the 14 uh, word slogan of white supremacy. You see how all this stuff ties back to the U.S. Mm -hmm. It all ties back. We've got the, the uh, I don't know, in 2018, there was an unsealed FBI indictment of four American white supremacists from the Rise Above movement, RAM movement. Right. And they, they had been trained by, by Ukraine's Azov Battalion in Ukraine. They were arrested in Huntington Beach. I don't know if you know about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They sure okay. okay, and uh, so U.S. law enforcement has done nothing to restrict the flow of right-wing American extremist days off basis. Uh, there's been no, I mean, if I go, when I went to Hungary, you know, I was taken to a little room uh, and my computer was forced to be turned on and I, I was uh, forced to take my clothes off and stuff just because I was going to Hungary in 2018. But if I'm a member of a fascist organization uh, in the United States and I want to travel to Ukraine for training and fascist uh, training, no problem. U.S. enforcement will never stop me. I can go wherever I want. It's a hands-off approach to Azov recruitment. And yeah. so, you know, this is all feeding in. There's a, there's a political a professor of political science at the University of Ottawa, who, whose name is Ivan uh, Kashkovsky. And he said, currently, the organizations that are fascist are stronger in Ukraine than in any other country in the world. But this fact is not reported by Western media because they see these organizations so supportive of the geopolitical agenda against Russia. So condemnations are limited to violence or human rights abuses. The, the, the historic justification for ruling elites uh, throughout history, used, uh, 20th century, Use the Nazis to destroy the, the East. That's right. And we embrace it, not we, they, it's embraced in the United States as much as it was in Germany. Well, more so, you know, in November of, of 2017, uh, Republican House Majority Leader Paul Ryan um, hosted Andriy uh, Parubi, and that's the, the last name you were looking for, the speaker of the Ukrainian parliament and the co-founder of the fascist Social National Party. Uh, tried, Come on over to Capitol Hill. And that's where they came. They came with their friends, all from Ukraine to Capitol Hill. With their, He's got his jet black hair, and he's got this gothic look. They're all believing in Julius Evola, the occultist philosopher. Yeah. Um, 
it's it's all in Washington. Right. This is, that, this is where it's going on. Yeah, I mean, uh, Jean Kirkpatrick set that model back in the 80s when she brought Yaroslav Stetsko and posed with him in pictures, you know, when she was United Nations ambassador exactly. uh, to, of the United States. And Stetsko was the uh, leader of the invasion force uh, in an alliance with Germany in June 30th in Operation Barbarossa when the Germans invaded uh, Ukraine and World War, to start World War II. That, you know, Stetsko was there. <laughs> he was leading the, uh, the uh, uh, Nachtingal Battalion. Well, my last, my last thing, and then I'll turn it over to Stephen or yourself, is that in, just to let people know, in 2016, Congress, this is very important, in 2016, Congress removed a ban on funding neo-Nazis in Ukraine right. from its year-end spending bill. Yep. Under lobbying and pressure from the Obama administration. Exactly. Because exactly. John, John Conyers got a Republican co-sponsor and it was passed unanimously to ban it. Then it was brought up again in 2018 and it was passed again. It There is a ban right now. That's right. And, fact, and, last, last, and the last thing about this is this new thing of the Pandora Papers. Well, now we find out that Baker McKenzie, one of the largest firms in the United States, helped create... Not, that helped create the offshore economy system. Um, one of its uh, uh, largest clients, okay, includes the Ukrainian oligarch Ihor Kolomiski, who U.S. authorities oh. allege laundered 5.5 billion to entangle the shell companies, purchasing factories and commercial properties where across the U.S. heartland. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and this is the guy that, that actually invaded his competitor's office, uses his Nazi battalions that he funded uh, and took over the companies and just uh, intimidated and terrorized them. I mean, he took over uh, their assets in the gas infrastructure business in uh, Ukraine. Well, I'm glad that you brought that up. You know, we're seeing this, you know, this really goes back to Brzezinski and McKinnon back way in the 1900s. It's the pivot point. Ukraine is the pivot point for control of the Earth Island, for Eurasia. Yeah. And Trump tried to do it with military aid to Ukraine. It got him in trouble. Um, but Ukraine is uh, is a pivot point, and it's a very dangerous situation. For it. Yep. Yep. I totally agree. All right. On that note, uh, I suppose we shall sign off for now. Uh, again, I would uh, like to apologize to all you listeners out there for uh, any disruptions uh, the fiasco with Podbeam has caused. And uh, for subscribers, I will uh, get everything back up here in time for uh, your you know, bi-monthly uh, episodes here. So on that note, good night and good luck to you all.